0: Well, here we are with another episode of the podcast. It's been a, been a little while, but my life has been kind of crazy busy right now. Uh, it's been good, but, uh, but pretty busy. So, so we got to do some stuff. We have uh, other responsibilities to take care of. Uh, but I thought, well, let's uh, record another podcast episode. So I uh, hope you all are well. And uh, so today, but we are talking about the August 1991 coup in, uh, in the Soviet Union. And uh, we're going to be talking about how the coup failed and sort of talking about as well why it was inevitable that it would fail. Um, So this coup occurred in the the late summer of 1991 uh, when hardline communists in Moscow attempted to overthrow the Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, who was vacationing in Crimea at the time. On August 18th, the plotters claimed legitimacy by announcing that Gorbachev was ill and unable to and unfit to perform his duties as head of the Soviet Union. They created a body called the State Committee for the State of Emergency in the USSR. And so from now on, I'm just gonna call it the Emergency Committee. Uh, that's a, that's a long uh, long term. The thing is when you study Soviet topics, a lot of their government organizations are inc- have incredibly long acronyms. And uh, so yeah, this one will just go to the Emergency Committee they claimed to act quote in the interests of the soviet people and to be preserving the soviet union's territorial integrity amidst the supposed chaos stemming from gorbachev's supposed ill health various extraordinary measures would begin at four o'clock in the morning of august 19th and this state of emergency would uh, would last for six months and so when doing this the emergency committee uh, cited the law which was called On the Legal Regime of Emergency Measures. And they also, uh, they also cited Article 127 of the Soviet Union's Constitution, and it stated thus, The procedure of the Supreme Soviet of the USSR and all of its bodies shall be defined in the rules and regulations of the Supreme Soviet of the USSR and other laws of the USSR enacted on the basis of the Constitution of the USSR. So by referencing the Constitution, the plotters tried to claim rightful, lawful authority. And the Human Rights Watch Report of 1991 briefly examined Soviet law regarding states of emergency. And states of emergency in the USSR allowed the Soviet government to temporarily suspend civil liberties. Various republics within the Soviet Union, which had been recently experiencing ethnic and nationalistic tensions had already had uh, states of emergency declared within them in 1990, in the previous year. And in certain areas, public assemblies had been banned, troops had been deployed, and media broadcasting had been restricted. So uh, just, just a quick explanation might be a little bit helpful here. So there's a Supreme Soviet of the USSR that was based in Moscow. So that was the head, the, the main council or the main governing uh, body, if you will, of the the Soviet Union while the Soviet, uh, Soviet Union had various republics uh, within it so there was the the Russian Republic which was the largest and the main one where the most which was the most powerful and then you also had the Ukrainian Republic the Tajik the Estonian um, Latvian and and so on and so forth so what I mean by uh, the local uh, republics declaring states of emergency that was a state of emergency within those local republics right And so the coup suspended opposing political activities and forbade mass movements and gatherings. So remember, the states of emergency allowed the Soviet government to um, suspend civil liberties, so the emergency committee was just doing this. State censorship was was restored, reversing some of the glasnost, or openness, free speech reforms conducted under Gorbachev. Communist publications like Pravda were restricted, as well as Izvestia and other media outlets. These restrictions would only be repealed through a special body of the emergency committee. Troops were also brought into Moscow under the command of General Colonel N.V. Kalinin, and Gorbachev was blockaded in Crimea. Gennady Yanayev, who was the vice president of the Soviet Union, took Gorbachev's place and was declared the Soviet Union's new president. Other prominent members of the new emergency committee government were Valentin Pavlov, the Prime Minister of the USSR, Boris Pugo, the country's Minister of Internal Affairs, A.I. Tizyakov, responsible for transportation and other similar duties, and D.T. Iazov, the Minister of Defense. However, the coup did not receive enough support. When Boris Yeltsin, who had been elected as president of the Russian Soviet Republic, remember, not president of the Soviet Union, president of the Russian Republic, which eventually became Russia when the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, When uh, Boris Yeltsin, he was elected the the president of the Russian Soviet Republic on June 12th, 1991. So just about... um, um, just about two months before this, this coup happened, he was elected the president of the Russian Republic. And Boris Yeltsin stood against these plotters, and he resisted Yanayev and his co-conspirators, and the public rallied behind Yeltsin, and the emergency committee failed. It was over on August 21st, 20, just two days after the plotters' emergency measures had come into effect. Gorbachev was restored to power, and the emergency committee members were arrested, though in 1994, those who were still alive were granted amnesty, and though Boris Pugo had committed suicide. However, though the coup failed within days, it all was not well within the Soviet Union, as it collapsed only months later in December. Mikhail Gorbachev himself said that the August Coup was a sign that things were seriously wrong in the country. And this was a book that he wrote called The August Coup, The Truth and the Lessons. So looking at the motivations of the coup, why did the emergency committee want to carry this out? And so because carrying a coup is a huge risk, it is an act of treason. Thus, if the push fails, the consequences will be very grave. So anyone wanting to take such risk with their lives must have a very good reason for taking part in the seizure of power. The members of the emergency committee had various reasons for their attempt at toppling Gorbachev. So the the first issue was Gorbachev's perestroika and glasnost projects. Uh, these were sweeping changes meant to revive the Soviet economy and give Soviet citizens more freedom freedom of expression. Ironically, these reforms were a political problem for Gorbachev. Days before the coup attempt, the Soviet leader wrote a document known as the Crimea article. In this, Gorbachev talked about how people were expressing doubts about the the perestroika and glasnost reforms. People worried that, like the Bolsheviks' false revolution of November 1917, the reforms were giving empty promises for a rejuvenated Soviet society. The Soviet, Soviet's peop, Soviet, the Soviet citizenry was uh, skeptical. In 1992, John Leppingwell argued that the changes were failing, which caused Gorbachev to lose popularity to Russian President Boris Yeltsin. And it must be kept in mind as well that perestroika or restructuring of the Soviet economy, and also Glasnost, the um, openness project, allowing uh, more freedom of, freedom of the press and everything. Okay, good ideas, whatever. It may be well intentioned, but the Soviet many Soviet people were thinking. Well, wow, this is a government project. This isn't me. This isn't a, rev- a quote revolution from below here. This is a quote revolution from above. So this is where the, the some of the skepticism came from. And finally, in his book The August Coup, Gorbachev admitted that the 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 Emergency Committee was able to amass. Of military personnel and in and equipment independently, without any agreement on the part of the comp- of the country's supreme legislative body, they were able to act on their own. The Supreme Soviet and its chairman, he said, did not stop the plotters from starting their putsch. This fact showed how inept and vulnerable the political system was at that time to instability. In the eyes of the plotters, hardline communists, and some of the military leadership. Gorbachev and his reforms were breaking down the order of the old Soviet system this the coup members feared <coughs> would lead to a degrading of Soviet values security and law and order so in a way it it's kind of funny like it sometimes um, in uh, studying this subject I've I've seen the the plotters be known as um, conservatives it, it, that that is so it's so weird talking about s- people in the Soviet Union wanting this, to preserve the Soviet um, method and Soviet government and everything, you know, trying to keep alive a communist uh, system and uh, calling them conservatives. In, in the West, that's <laughs> just a strange, strange thing. Um, but anyway, that, I just found that that was um, quite a funny, funny aspect of it. Funny, funny wording. But in any case, um, so they were fearing that uh, Glasnost and Perestroika were destroying the very nature of the Soviet Union. It is worth briefly noting a document called A Word to the People, which was written in July 1991. Gennady Zyuganov, the future leader of the Russian Communist Party, had compiled this document with other Soviet leaders. The writers warned the military and other institutions acting within the USSR, even the Russian Orthodox Church, they wanted them to band together and protect the Soviet Union from imminent collapse. It has been suggested that this document was an inspiration for the coup attempt, which occurred a month later. Ethnic and national divisions were also a concern for the hardliners. As freedom of speech came to the Warsaw Pact countries outside of the Soviet Union, such as Romania and Poland, citizens openly expressed their disgust with the communist system. They actively pressured the local governments, causing them to fail. Instead of suppressing these movements with force, Gorbachev retreated. Uh, so this made his posi- political position within the Soviet Union even more vulnerable and his inability, quote, to deal with dissenters it seemed to justify the hardliners or cons- communist conservatives <laughs> narrative that Gorbachev was a threat to the system they wished to preserve. This caused a real problem for Gorbachev, as Peter Kinez has argued. How could Gorbachev deny independence to the ethnic groups within the USSR now? He had denied the use of force when the rest of Eastern Europe decided to get rid of communism. And then, when would peoples within the Soviet Union take advantage of this passive response? In 1990, Gorbachev seemed to have been tackling the potential problem with nationalities. And the USSR's constituent republics, it was proposed, would be forbidden the right to to secede or break away from the Soviet Union, even though this was a right that they theoretically always had up until this point. Uh, decision-making was increasingly moving to the center, and during the, his New Year's speech of 1991, Gorbachev called for Soviet unity. But things were different in 1991 when Gorbachev's centrist stance weakened as opposition grew within the Soviet system. Not long after his New, Year, new Year's plea for unity, he drafted a new Union treaty, which weakened the center in favor of the republics. Referendums were held to gauge public opinion on the republics' question. And on May 17, 1991, 76% voted to keep the Soviet Union as a, quote, federation of equal sovereign republics. But it must be noted that Armenia, Estonia, Georgia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Moldova. Six out of the USSR's 15 republics refused to participate in the referendum at all. They felt that they were already not part of the Soviet Union, so revolution, uh, a referendum wasn't relevant to them. Soon after that, citizens in the Russian Republic, which had been the Soviet center, protested for increased Russian sovereignty. Clearly, a centralized Soviet Union was not going to work very well anymore. A new so-called 9 plus 1 treaty, also called the Novo-Ogarievo Treaty, was suggested on April 23, 1991. This proposal was groundbreaking because republics, and not the center, would take part in the negotiations, giving the republics a much louder political voice. Thus, it could have calmed any anti-Soviet resentment, the type of anger which was breaking up communism in Eastern Europe, because Gorbachev was willing to make such a concession to the republics. Eventually, it was decided that the 9 9 plus 1 treaty would be signed on August 20th, 1991. This was not to be, of course, for this was the second day of the emergency committee's time in power. So, Gorbachev's retreat from Eastern Europe and his effort to appease the republics within the Soviet Union itself it underlined the centralized Soviet system, but it also angered the party's li- hardliners who took part in the coup. Not wanting to surrender the old order to national divisions and the republics, the plotters took up the torch of Soviet patriotism and strong Communist Party leadership, which they saw as the only instrument through which the country would remain intact. In his book, The August Coup, Gorbachev described how he found out the push was taking place. On august eighteenth, around five PM, he was working in his office while on vacation at Camp Foros in Crimea. A group of unexpected visitors came to see him, and he wished to contact whoever had sent them. He then realized that all the all the phones in his office were suddenly not working. The coup had started, and Gorbachev was isolated from the faraway capital in Moscow. Gorbachev asked the visitors who had sent them, and He remembers that uh, when he asked this, they were really nervous and they actually answered his question. They eventually spoke up and it was revealed that they had been sent by the emergency committee, uh, the coup plotters. And um, this tipped off Gorbachev because the emergency committee, this was an an organization that he did not establish. Gorbachev's rejected uh, the committee's state of emergency and he said that the 9 plus 1 treaty that was previously mentioned had to be signed. Though his communication lines to the outside world were cut, Gorbachev filmed a videotape on August 19th in which he debunked the lie which the plotters told about his ill health. His doctor of six years also wrote a letter saying that Gorbachev had observed, quote, observed no substantial changes in the state of his health recently. On the evening of August 21st, Gorbachev refused to talk with some of the newly arrived coup collaborators until his phone line was connected. His demand was fulfilled, and he immediately contacted the Russian President Boris Yeltsin and the leaders of other Soviet republics. He also contacted the Commandant of the Kremlin Guard, commanding him to quarantine the building. In addition to ordering a plane to land near Foros, where he was vacationing, he also even got to establish contact with American President George Bush. Gorbachev was able to establish effective command while under blockade in Crimea, and he eventually returned to Moscow. Meanwhile, Boris Yeltsin was in the capital, encouraging Russians to to launch a strike in protest against the emergency committee plotters. Thousands of people demonstrated in the streets, not only in Moscow where they blocked the plotters' tanks, but also in Leningrad, modern-day St. Petersburg, and other places not directly affected by the coup. Why did the coup fail? There are many reasons which I will outline here. First, not all of the military and security apparatus agreed with this ill-fated project. The commander of the Leningrad military district did not join the coup, nor did Pavel Grachev, the head of the paratroopers. As as for the military and per- KGB personnel who did support the coup, they were actually uh, unwilling to kill their opponents. During August 19th to 21st, only three people were killed. Though these deaths were certainly tragic, they were due to vehicle collisions. The, this is not meant to cheapen their, their lives, but... This shows how the benign the coup really was. These were not due to gunfire or any kind of, of violent action on the part of the emergency committee. Politics affected the military's loyalty. In his analysis of the Soviet military during the coup, John Leppingwell noted that the lower ranks and conscripts were typically more liberal. The new paradigm of perestroika and glasnost had an interest on the, had an influence on them and they supported the people's opinions. The higher ranked, uh, more hardline um, communist military personnel were not mobilized enough to help the coup succeed. And they were also seen as doing little to alleviate, alleviate the low living standards of the lower ranks. So there was little reason to support them. Leffingwell also argued that the military would not be threatened in the upcoming Union Treaty negotiations. It would still have a role in a new Soviet order, so, not all of the military felt that a coup was needed to protect themselves, or their role, after the 9 plus 1 treaty wouldn't have been signed. Bruce Farquhar has commented on coups and how or why they succeed or fail. He observed that conscripts, like those in the Soviet army, typically have less cohesion than higher ranked soldiers. The higher ups are also more likely to carry out orders effectively. Thus, conscripts are not good tools to use in a coup attempt. This was especially case in the, the case in the Soviet Army, because democratic reforms had weakened the Communist Party, which had formerly been the glue and commanding body of both the USSR and its military. There is also the simple fact that as conscripts, they have been pressed into service. Therefore, in an abnormal situation such as a coup, they are less likely to be willing to follow their superior's orders. It must also be remembered that military and political actions must cater to society in order to be successful. They are not in isolation. Gorbachev wrote that if the Putsch had happened a year and a half or two years earlier, it might have succeeded. But by 1991, Soviet society had changed. So dis- despite the skepticism towards Glasnost and Perestroika, which I mentioned earlier, they-, they had made some change, and this made the coup you know, implausible by that point. And so the reforms had done their work, and as I discussed earlier, the centralized government of the USSR was giving way to the republics. It didn't have the power that it used to have over them. The USSR's with the relationships with the United States and other countries had also changed dramatically, and the Soviet people had had a much more developed, shall we say, democratic consciousness. The international community was no, no longer saw the USSR as the boogeyman or antagonist now that democracy was sort of creeping into the country. In trying to steal power and bring back the old ways, the Emergency Committee's coup was doomed from the start. People wanted democracy, not, quote, dictatorship and states of emergency. As mentioned before, the reforms had affected the military personnel, and some of those participating in the coup even started fraternizing with the local civilians. They had no clear mission, and they did not have to defend it against an external enemy, which might have rallied the, the population uh, towards their goals, but they weren't under external threat. Military assets and equipment should also be not, touched on here. Uh, the plotters had tanks in the Muscovite streets, and ships held Gorbachev under siege in Crimea. But as mentioned earlier, the paratroopers did not join the coup, the Leningrad garrison did not collaborate either, and Leningrad was not very far from Moscow. This helps to show that the coup did not have a lot of power outside the capital. Mikhail Gorbachev was also able to return to Moscow by plane, showing that the plotters did not have the key asset of air superiority. The August coup was also an utter failure because it did not capture all essential targets and locations that it would need to succeed. It did seize the White House in Moscow where the Russian Republic's parliament met. But as we've seen, even though the plotters had essentially placed Gorbachev under house arrest in Crimea, he was eventually able to talk to all the key people outside and give orders after he demanded to have his communications restored. From what he wrote in the August coup, it seems that the emergency committee's collaborators were feckless and, and essentially caved to pressure, even though they should have been in control of the situation. Well, they technically, they technically were. Um, de jour, they were in charge. They were running the government now, but they, they didn't back that up with anything. However, since we are using Gorbachev's own memoir as a source here, we must be aware of any personal flavor he may have written into the account that would make him look stronger and more competent than those who tried to overthrow him. Nonetheless, the plotters did not properly take Boris Yeltsin into account. As mentioned before, Boris Yeltsin was elected to head the Russian Republic on June 12, 1991, with, with a strong majority... Yeltsin had gotten 57.3% of the vote, while the runner-up, N.I. Rushkov, received only 16.85%. Yeltsin was then seen standing on top of a tank being used in the coup attempt, and he called on Russians to strike and resist the anti-constitutional illegitimate seizure of power. Yet the plotters did not arrest Yeltsin, and he was able to lead the popular resistance against their efforts. Yeltsin also claimed control of the Russian military forces, as the Russian Republic, Republic's president, he had more political legitimacy than the illegal emergency committee. Under Yeltsin's leadership, young people who were now living in the era of perestroika, glasnost, and, and uh, emerging, emerging democracy were more than glad to resist the coup and erect barricades to stop its tanks. Another target was control over media and information, which the putsch had failed to completely get under their grasp. The emergency committee did re-establish censorship, but the plotters did not effectively stop the Russian grapevine system of sharing information, which rendered state control of the media much less effective. Bruce Farkow notes, too, that this grapevine had existed during the era of Leonid, Leonid Brezhnev, so by 1991, the system had had some good practice. The effectiveness of the grapevine is evident in that while the coup was... Focused in Moscow, the seat of power, people were still able to hear about it and even protest against the putsch in, in Leningrad. Even worse for the plotters, the media was able to work against them despite the censorship that they restored. Russian and even Western radio and television stations were constantly reporting on the situation. The Russian TV show Vrema, or Time, had an had an ironically humorous broadcast in that it was said that all was calm in Moscow, but then it showed the demonstration in Leningrad, as well as Boris Yeltsin delivering his message atop of a plotter's tank. Television broadcasts were could also show the emergency committee members giving their news conference on the evening of August 19th. This news conference was rather unconvincing, as Gennady Yanayev sounded rather unsure of himself and a skeptical laugh could be heard when he was trying to wish Gorbachev good health. The media made visible the emergency committee's incompetence. During the unconvincing performance at the news conference, the self-proclaimed president of the USSR, Yanayev, was described as having, quote, shaking hands. The plotters could not convince Russians that this was a legitimate government, and they could not offer the Soviet people anything other than just hatred for Gorbachev's plans. Watching the coup unfold, one civilian in Moscow said that the economy needed to be strengthened, and that could not be done with tanks rolling down the streets. So who was the ultimate winner in all this? The coup failed, Gorbachev returned to power, but again the Soviet Union eventually collapsed a few months later, so the ultimate winner here was Boris Yeltsin. Gor- Boris Yeltsin was seen as one of the people, as can be seen bo- both in his popularity and the uh, Russian presidential elections, but also um, in the fact that, he, again, he was able to just get on top of a tank and call on people to to not join the coup, not support it. But Gorbachev, on the other hand, was seen as a dry lecturer. And, you know, that seems to be a thing that uh, where people do not like politicians who are seen as lecturers. And, And uh, with uh, Yeltsin, uh, he had support from all across the Soviet Union, including the mayors of Moscow and Leningrad. In a number of ways, the failure of the August Putsch of 1991 can be compared with the failed coup in Turkey in 2016. The plotters there failed to keep Turkish President Recep Erdogan out of the picture, as the emergency committee had also failed to do with Boris Yeltsin and Mikhail Gorbachev. Erdogan was still in command, even though the coup collaborators had seized a lot of media outlets, much of Istanbul, and a lot of territory within the capital Ankara. When Erdogan's whereabouts were unknown, he suddenly returned to Ankara and spoke to the media. Paul Kirby of the BBC called this the turning point of the coup attempt. Erdogan urged supporters to flock to the streets, even, and even the political opposition opposed the coup, for, quote, Turkey had had enough of coups and upheavals. Also, as in the Soviet case, a number of Turkish military personnel did not take part, including troops in Istanbul, the chief of staff, the, the Navy chief, and head of the special forces. Markow notes the success of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 when communists were able to seize rail and telegraph lines as well as ammunition factories. They didn't focus on the main government building, the, which is the Winter Palace, the modern day um, Hermitage Museum, until they were ready to do so. Alexander Kerensky's provisional government, however, was focused on guarding that site while critical installations were falling into Bolshevik hands. Even though Kerensky and Gennady Gennady Yanayev held on to the central government buildings in their respective eras, in 1917 and 1991, they failed because of what they did not control. Yet, even though the emergency committee did have control of the White House, it did not disconnect international connections and phone lines in Moscow. Loyalists in the White House parliament were able to talk to the resistance, just like Gorbachev was able to as well. Though, regarding the 1917 example, I should not neglect to mention that the Bolsheviks did actually storm the Winter Palace complex and walked in on a meeting that the provisional government was holding there. Finally, the ethnic and nationality problem in the USSR was a problem the Emergency Committee could not overcome. Over the period of Glasnost, ethnic voices were getting louder, especially in the Baltic Republics. Ethnic Russians were moving away from places such as Latvia and back into the Russian Soviet Republic. But Russians were also starting to support Baltic independence, and when Ukraine left the Soviet Union in December 1991, many Russians living within that territory, uh, living within its territory, were in favor of leaving the USSR altogether. Again, the Novo-Ogorevo Union process, or the 9 plus 1 Union process, was a sign that the Soviet world was changing forever. Nine of the Soviet republics agreed to the creation of a union of sovereign states—Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Russia, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. Even though the coup interrupted the 9 plus 1 treaty signing, Gorbachev stated that the process had been timed perfectly. When the hardliners coup took place, this put them into a position of desperation rather than command while Gorbachev and the other republic's leaders had hammered out a plan for a new, revitalized union. Gorbachev and his new ways had gained the political initiative. This, along with the drastic changes that had occurred in Soviet society, gave the plotters very little time to consolidate their position. The old Soviet communist system was collapsing. Nationalities were being emboldened as the Soviet economy faltered, and the republics within the Union were not maintaining effective economic relations. And there were other things too. There was also some uh, very real and very understandable resentment. Uh, for example, in the Ukrainian uh, Republic, th- there was a lot of uh, resentment uh, against the, the Russian center of the Soviet Union over past historical grievances, including a, six, including an alliance from 1654 that annexed Ukraine into the Russian Empire, the Stalin-era Holodomor, or the famine, and the Soviet government's gross mishandling of the Chernobyl disaster in 1986. Such memories made the breakup of the USSR more likely during the Union Treaty negotiations, or even if that Union survived, how long would it last? As Gorbachev said, the coup was a sign that the USSR drastically needed a change. Living standards were far too low and the economy was faltering in the country. And along with the social and economic problems, there were the ethnic resentments and the republic's clamor for independence. The August coup cast doubt on the USSR's viability and this only encouraged the republics to move closer to independence. The Ukrainian republic leader, uh, Leonid Kuchma said that his republic was not secure being tied to the Soviet Union in which some of the government's top officials tried to seize power and and this brings up the whole idea of something called ethno-federalism the, the idea of having different ethnic groups having their own republics you know some may argue that this may help maintain order um, in a in a government like the USSR, for example, so each each ethnic group has its own republic. So this is good, but in in the late in the early in the late 80s and early 90s, this was actually causing a the situation to to break up. And and you know the example of the former Yugoslavia is also important to keep in mind in this. Sure, the U, Yugoslavia was one one country, and it had different republics such as Croatia, Serbia, um, Bosnian republics within it. But when the war started in the, in the 90s as well, those ethnic republics broke apart. And Yugoslavia Yugoslavia was broken up into those different countries which are there today. And you know, that's certainly a wider debate than what we're going to have in this podcast. But the collapse of the Soviet Union because of uh, local republics' uh, resentment towards the center or just a willingness to go their own way, and just being skeptical of the central Moscow uh, with the central government in Moscow, uh, that really show, that's really a real prime example of federalism when it fails. After the August coup attempt, the Russian Communist Party was eventually banned and its assets were seized, and Gorbachev resigned as the head of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. The republic started declaring independence one by one, leaving almost nothing left of the USSR. A Commonwealth of Independent States, or the CIS, was formed, composed of former Soviet uh, republics. But Peterkin has suggests that they shared almost nothing in common, other than the problems which has helped the end of the USSR in the first place. And uh, these problems were struggling economies and ethnic troubles. The coup, which was meant to save the Soviet Union, served also as a symptom of its biggest problems and it helped bring the country and the world's first great communist experiment to an end. Well, that was episode 9 of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. I certainly hope that uh, you enjoyed it, and uh, looking forward to episode 10, uh, and uh, we'll see you then.